on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, Weston Williams, joined by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week, a heroic coloratura soprano is inducted posthumously into the Hall of Fame. Sorry, Gruberova fans, we thought we had so much time left with this legendary artist. Plus, in the two-minute drill, while the drill took a break for Halloween Spooktacular, both Operalia and a trade newsapalooza happened nonetheless. If you're watching on the Dallas Opera Network, subscribe to our podcast or on Stitcher or just favorite our show on Apple Podcasts, and that way you can hear the entire show. And uh, without further ado, Ashley, how's it going? I'm going to start with you because I feel like you always have sports. I, you know, I do. As the, as your lone lady on your panel, come to me for your sports updates. Uh, let's see. No, gender stereotypes are wrong. Forget those. Uh, so it is really tough to be a sports fan in Chicago right now. The Bears are an absolute mess. They lost again, despite Justin Fields getting 100 yards in. Uh, the Hawks are winless, and they were just fined $2 million in a, uh, a sexual harassment scandal that is really going off the rails. Um, the Bulls are okay for now, but Patrick Williams is now out for the season. Season, probably with a wrist injury and the season just started uh so it's uh it's tough to be a sports fan in chicago this week for a second i was like "Ooh, that guy from the phantom of the opera movie but no that's <laughs> patrick wilson i just that can't get a... phantom off my brain ever Matt since Cummings never story. not on brands uh, <laughs> uh how about you oliver did you uh, do anything sports related or spooky related over the past week um I did see a little bit of the uh, U.S. Figure Skating Championship, and I guess it was Le- Leesburg or something. And uh, yeah, I just want Nathan Chen to show up this year at the Olympics. I know what happened last what was four years ago, right? Seems like yeah. yesterday when we were like, "Oh, he's gonna win everything," like Simone Biles in the uh, in didn't the... land the quad. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, for men's figure skating and women's at this point, they've all got to have quads to even think about being on the podium. Which is yeah. depressing if you think about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't have quads, so I could never be up there, which is sad because it's always been my dream to be out there on the ice, spinning, <laughs> jumping. A regular Michelle Trachtenberg we have. <laughs> well, rest assured, you know, the quad is the only thing stopping you from being out there, so never give up, Weston. <laughs> this is a true story. The one and only time I've been ice skating, I had to have five people hold me up to t- take me off the ice. So I, th- I think uh, my Olympic dreams might have been uh, that was what you were 10, a little right? premature. Well, just, oh, yeah, just absolutely. Just get Kim Cattrall <laughs> to be your coach and anything's possible, as long as you're a physicist in college. <laughs> and that's the last reference I make to the Michelle Trachtenberg movie Ice Princess tonight, I promise. <laughs> Don't let's that. talk. Lied. Let's talk some opera. And now, ladies and gentlemen, this is OBS Hall of Famer. Our enthusiastic yet humble salute to a distinguished opera artist who has gone above and beyond to contribute greatly, distinctively, and with grand significance to the art and honor of opera. At the beginning of recording Opera Box Score two weeks ago, we had just learned that Edita Gruberova passed away at the age of 74. At the time, we did not know how she died, but uh, later news revealed that she had fallen in her home and she had a head injury. A head injury. Mm-hmm. So um, pretty tragic. And we know that she was supposed to do this uh, recital tour uh, in 2020, but then... COVID prevented that from happening and it forced her into early retirement, even though she was going to retire. It was, it was imminent, but right. Right. um, Yeah. This just, it, it stopped her career just as it was winding down in a more celebratory way. And it's really heartbreaking. And we're going to listen to uh, some recordings and talk about what made her great and what made her such a unique artist. But I want to say just to start that, Edita Gruberova's voice is one of those voices that is really polarizing. Uh, Some people really just don't like the sound of it. Uh, It's steely where you want warmth. And uh, it really cuts like a razor. I mean, there's not a lot of um, vibrato in the sound. 
per se. It's very exact. And it really is one of those voices that just kind of like enters your ear like a needle, you know? And I'm crazy about that. And, you know, I've been listening to her work. She's been singing forever. I've been listening to her literally my whole life as an opera fan and trying to play recordings for my friends like, oh, you've got to hear this. And just they're like, what? No, Ugh, you know? So I just learned to live with like the shame of being <laughs> a Gubarova fan and have these recordings for myself and just listen to them alone. And now with the age of the internet, I find that there are so many people who feel exactly the same way as I do. And oh, if yeah. I would have just, if I would have just moved to Germany when I was a 16 year old gay, <laughs> I would be uh, in the community of people who really, really love this instrument, this singer. She didn't sing so much in the U S and uh, you know, we'll talk about her career, but uh, it's our loss. So without further ado, I will hand it over to Matt to begin this tribute. Yep. Thanks Oliver. I, count myself also as a group Rova stan if you can't tell from this segment that we're about to go through uh you you know it now at least <laughs> i'm looking uh, at the at the uh outline right now and i am intimidated it is substantial it's 28 well, how pages else long are you gonna, how else are you gonna cover someone who sang for literally 50 years and that's just professionally she sang before that too uh, so there's there's a couple stories about the life and career of Adita Grubarova that really like stick out to me just as touchstones for her career, her life as a singer. Uh, and I think that they're really interesting, and I think that they're more interesting than just like a list of where she sang, which, spoiler alert, is like everywhere and everything. Um, but how she first made it big and started becoming a professional singer to begin with, and she is... Born in 1946 in Bratislava, uh, which at that point was part of communist Czechoslovakia. Uh, she was born to a father who had been jailed for being non-communist for, for his political beliefs. This was like not an untumultuous childhood. Um, <laughs> but where she really made her, her path to her career is she would sing at church all the time. And there was a priest there who thought that she was so incredible, rightfully so, that she just had to join the conservatory. So he helped train her. He played for her recordings in order to get in. They He taught her piano so that she could pass the entrance exams. Uh, and just the idea that you would get one foot in the door from your opera career, from your church job, is literally every singer's dream. And I don't <laughs> think it has dream. ever happened to anyone else. <laughs> if, you go on yeah. the, if you go on the singer's forum on Facebook, there's always these people trying to move to Chicago. It's like, is there a place for a soprano in Chicago? Anybody know any church jobs? Like, oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, she makes it through the conservatoire. She makes her opera debut in Bratislava at age 22 in 1968. And the next year, she successfully auditioned to join the Vienna State Opera. Uh, as you may uh, not recall, Weston, but you might, Oliver, that was part of the Cold War. <laughs> so <laughs> being able to go back and forth between the Czechoslovakian and Austrian borders got more and more difficult. Uh, and it was really because she was able to successfully audition at Vienna, singing what else, Queen of the Night, um, that she got hot. She got offered a contract right there on the spot, and eventually was able to defect to the West as things like got worse and worse. Uh, and this this makes it into many of her biographical write ups. But there's also this incredible documentary on YouTube called The Art of Bel Canto that everyone should watch. Uh, that's about her. It's like 54 minutes. It's in it's in German. And she tells the story about how she's like extremely pregnant with her mother who can barely walk uh, with the two suitcases, like just going to Vienna and uh, defecting. And it, it's a pretty incredible story. Uh, and yeah. I think it just shows the the gumption that this woman had in order to really make this career work. Uh, especially when you look at all of the roles that she sang through her career. It was, it's over 60 roles. Uh, and it's not just the German coloratura, Mozart and Strauss roles that you would expect to get done in German houses in Vienna. But also, she sang a ton of Italian rep. She sang Gilda, she sang Violetta, she sang Bel Canto, music galore. And she was part of the reason why these like middle European countries that didn't really have a huge affinity for that kind of Italian music. And I kind of missed the first Belcanto revival with Callis and Sills and Sutherland 
um, they they did these operas for Grubarova because she was their star, she was their treasure, and uh, it, it's like that's kind of an un, an, an overlooked part of her career. Right. Um, uh, it's the Slovakian Nightingale. Some of those iconic roles I talked about already, like Queen of the Night, was like that was how she made her debut. That was how many many people, m- many audiences came to find her. Uh, and she also sang Constanza in Abduction from the Seraglio in in Munich. She sang a lot in Munich, but she was able to just do this crazy hard as ridiculousness Mozart and Strauss <laughs> repertoire. Range had no problem for her. Uh, Coloratura had no problem for her. Um, and it's a really interesting voice, like Oliver was talking about earlier. I think it's like very bell-like and silvery at its core, almost like a Lucia Pop or a Gundula Janowitz. But she has a lot more ability to like modulate her actual tone than either of them. Yeah, so I like to yeah. think of it as like if Janowitz had Beverly Sills's coloratura technique and Joan Sutherland's consistency of tone, it might have sounded a little bit like Edita Gruborova. Um, <laughs> and it's it's very instrumental in a in a way that that Mozart and Strauss requires you to be and the like the obvious joy that she gets from playing with her overtones as she shifts her sound through all of these different lines like I feel like I can hear the smile on her face uh as as she winds her way through all of these like re- crazy lines of jagged coloratura <laughs> Uh, the pitch oh, I know. Is I all... know you're going to comment on this later on, but I just don't want to lose track of that bel canto documentary, the German documentary, mm-hmm. and like that was filmed probably when she was like already in her 60s or something. Yeah, it's from like and, 15 years ago. Yeah, so she was, or so so she was in her late 50s or early 60s, and she still had you know so much voice, uh, and she yeah. really took care of her voice and decided that she was going to stop singing certain repertoire and just focus on bel canto and you know she would do things even in that video at the age of whatever she was 60 years old 60, she would do things, yeah 62 yeah, do things that nobody does and she would smile and she would laugh a little bit it's like you know i'm just getting started you know <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah and that comes from this total and absolute control that she has over her phrasing like regardless of the repertoire that she's singing she's able to sing any pitch at any dynamic coming from any pitch at any dynamic like leaps are nothing to her uh runs are nothing to her decrescendos on high cues are nothing to her um and <laughs> part of how <laughs> She navigates those is through her this like very generous use of portamento through her singing, which some people would call um, sliding, sliding or swooping yeah. or swooping. I like to think of it as line. Um, well, here's the thing, really quickly, you don't hear it as a proper portamento because her voice doesn't have that much vibrato. If she yeah. had more vibrato, it would sound like portamento, but because her vibrato is so narrow, it does sound like sliding. I'll give people that. And. If on top of all of this, you throw in like a dash of like absolutely bizarre and campy stylistic choices that you just have to accept because they're so idiosyncratically <laughs> her. Like thing. that's um, that's Gruberova in a nutshell. Um, she made so many recordings. The list of record of her recordings on Wikipedia is like three pages long. If you would print it out, it includes three Ariannes of Naxos, three abductions from the Seraglio, a Hansel and Gretel where she plays the Dew Fairy, another one where she's Gretel, uh, three different magic flutes, three Lucia's de Lammermoor. Like it just goes on and on and on. Uh, repertoire that no one does: Beatrice di Tenda, I Capuletti di Montecchi, Norma, Lucrezia Borgia, like the Sutherland and Sills and Caballé repertoire that was done for prima donnas. She was able to resurrect, and it's like really the heir to that kind of role. I think so much so that she even started her own record company, Nightingale, in order to make <laughs> these recordings with her husband, Friedrich, her that. second husband, Friedrich Heider. Yeah. And there is some. I mean, she's had a lot of tragedy in her life i mean her daughter was in a terrible accident i forget when she was in vienna and um her first husband after the divorce commits suicide Mm. so um she's not without sadnesses in her life and plus you know the struggle of you know being living in communist czechoslovakia uh so much that you would how does somebody with that much hardship bring so much joy to people 
and the joy that the the joy that she finds in sharing music with others is so palpable through every recording that she made through every video of her that you watch and just by like completely and totally throwing herself into these characters on stage even though like no matter how melodramatic the situation no matter how much uh music snobs who like Wagner would want to poo-poo on Lucrezia Borgia like you can tell <laughs> that she is embodying this music because she believes in it and because she believes in the yeah. choices and uh that it just like really comes through that I'm willing that that any quibbles that you could take with her voice or her singing or her interpretation like I, it's all part and parcel with what makes her so special I don't think that you can really separate it out um, and on top of that like there's just it, it is very obvious through her singing that like the coloratura and the bravura is is expressive it's not just there for fireworks it's not just there so that she can be the person who sang the highest note the longest the fastest even though she also did do all those things like she it, it is it's it's joyful and it is like very much in the spirit of these characters that she's trying to bring a lot. Well, exactly. I'll, yeah. I'll also say it's because sometimes this music is so difficult that other singers are accomplished by just being able to sing it. But with Gubarova, nothing is too difficult for her. So she's always able to make expressive choices. Yeah. So, so you should definitely listen to her Lucia's, to her Constanza's uh, and to her Queens of the Night uh, but you, those are easy to find, and those are, we've done a whole segment talking yeah, about her. That, those are well, those are well known quantities. Yes. So um, let's begin. Uh, what would we, what should we hear just to understand this voice? I'd yeah. like to begin with a little sampler platter of just some of the stylistic <laughs> choices the, that she is appetizers. able to make because she's Gruberova. <laughs> These little technical clipettes. Uh, the first clip that we're going to hear is the cadenza from the very beginning of the bell song from Lakme, which she approaches in a way unlike anyone else. I have ever heard with um, these rapid fire staccato that that just fire off like a Gatling gun. Um, the next one is the ending to Una Voce Poco Fa, which is the ar- the opera in which uh, which is from uh, Barbara, of Seville, Barbara Seville, the yeah. opera where she made her operatic debut, and she recorded this a couple times. It no conductor on earth would let you sing it like this nowadays, but the just joy that comes through, I'm 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 with it. Uh, and the third clip is from the Mozart concert aria Popoli di Tassaglia, uh, which is infamous for having these two. It's like an 11 minute long aria, and at the end there are these two long scales that both ascend up to high G. Uh, and when Phillips went through and did their "Let's record every note that Mozart ever wrote" project uh, a wise a ways back. Um, they had to bring in the big guns and hire Edita to do Edita <laughs> No one else could really handle it. So here is your um, sampler platter of Edita Gubarova tricks. Some of these clips uh, are also attached to video, and you should find this video of Edita Gubarova singing Una Voce Poco Fa. And you'll notice something that she does when she finishes an aria and she's just squeezing out that last bit of air. She sort of bends her, she arches her back. Yep. And, and she sings like, the, like a cat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes it's sideways, but most of the times it's just straight back. And she shoots that last note up, you know, 
you know, 75 degrees. <laughs> and it's like, it becomes a thing that you're looking for. It's okay, there comes the bend. She's about out of air. She's squeezing out the last bit, but she's going to give you every last bit. So Every last drop. Yeah. It, that, that, that last note is just for the people in the very back row in the third yeah. balcony. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Back of the house, back of the house. One aria where she probably did have to do that 19 different times uh, is in the role where that really made her a star which is Zerbinetta from Ariadne of Naxos. Uh, this was after working as an ensemble member in Vienna for like six or seven years, she was finally able to get to do an actual starring role uh, that isn't Queen of the Night. And it was Zerbinetta. Uh, apparently when she coached this with Carl Böhm, who was conducting, he remarked, if only Strauss could have heard you sing this. <laughs> he might have made it, it harder. Just <laughs> so perfect. We'll come back to that. Uh, so, I not only is there one version of Grossmächtige Prinzessin, there are two because the original version that was written in 1912 is so long and so high and so complicated that even Richard Strauss said, "This is too much. Let's put, let's really rein this back in a little bit." <laughs> let's and pull somehow this back. a 16-minute aria in E became only a 12-minute aria in D. Um, so easy. Edita Gruberova being uh, a beast unto herself is one of the very few people who have recorded this original 1912 version as well as the 1916 version. And so what I would like to present for you, for your listening pleasure, um, is some of the differences between key junctures of this aria and how well she is able to handle both of them. Uh, in this first set of clips, we're going to hear uh, the end of like the slow kind of languorous section where she gets to um, bust out her long phrases and do these big swooping legatos. Uh, and this, the, in one uh, version, it gets lower and in another version, it does not. <laughs> You first heard the 1916 version of Grossmächtige Prinzessin and next, and followed by the 1912 version. This aria, I should say, is, uh, the, the role of Zerbinetta is like a Commedia dell'arte heroine who is just kind of copy-pasted by accident into the middle <laughs> of uh, an opera seria. There is much more to it than that. It has to do with like the bourgeoisie not understanding art. Because, of course, it does. Uh, but she bloody. basically is in the middle of this Greek tragedy, walking around going, this is so dumb. Just get another boyfriend. <laughs> For And here's all the yeah. boyfriends I've had. And let me sing uh, very high about how great they all were. Uh and that kind That's of... the most accurate. I wish you had been my lecturer on this in college. <laughs> that is so accurate. And so often this, uh, this aria comes across as like, a decathlon that the soprano just has to get through, but not with Gruberova. Like she, she prances around like a little minx and there is so much 
fun in her sound, the way she plays with her tone. You actually hear that she is laughing and like had a good time when with the story that she is telling. Uh and and that comes across Ariadne is not on on screen, but like that definitely comes across. It goes on and it goes on and uh there's multiple different little cadenza cabaletta sections. Uh and now I would we're gonna hear um about midway through the aria from the nineteen twelve version, followed by the uh by from the nineteen sixteen version, followed by the nineteen twelve version. For those of you familiar with this aria, like you just listen to the whole back half of the 1912 version and go, this, it's so high. It's so high. How is she doing this? And not only is it so high, but there's like an extra five minutes of cadenza material at the end of it. It kind of goes off the rails a little bit. Um, uh, But I highly recommend that you search out the full recording of that 1912 version. It's on her famous opera arias CD, which is on Spotify. It's the one uh, with her wearing a red dress and puff sleeves and just kind of smiling cherubically. (laughs) As, As you would after singing that. Yes. And... Going back to what we were talking about earlier, just her unique control over her voice, including, I think, some of her voice's overtones and her phrasing, is what was able to make her fairly successful in both this very demanding German coloratura music and bel canto. Like, more more accomplished in both of them than most. I would say maybe Natalie Desay is up there with her in her ability to, like, sing both idioms correctly, but even she did not have the same kind of, like, freedom and joy in some of that really, uh, truly bonkers Or music. longevity of career. Or longevity of, of career, certainly. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, just one quick sidebar. Um, she wanted to sing the three Donizetti queens, Elizabeth and Roberto Devereaux, Mary Stewart, and um, Anna Bolena in the U.S. That's what she wanted the Met to do for her. They're like, you know what? Nobody wants to see these operas, so no thanks. And so she never came back to the Met. Uh, meanwhile, they staged it for Anna de Trepko, who in the end didn't do Dropped it. Dropped out of the other two. Yeah. <laughs> and so, Sandra saved the day. Yeah, I mean, we're very happy that we got Sandra Rubinovsky to do that. But, you know, Gruber went back to her home base, uh, Germany, and she did them. And she, like, brought the house down every time she sang these roles. Mm-hmm. 
Vienna and Munich are really where she did most of her uh, mo- most involved singing, especially her new roles, because that's and the fan base there just knows her so well. Uh, so in 2005, when this was the the, the original run of adding uh, Elisabetta from Roberto Devro into her repertoire, this production is. I think available in full on YouTube as well. It's very cool. She's styled kind of like Margaret Thatcher, um, but <laughs> still, but but also doing a Queen Elizabeth sort of a thing. And what I want to you to listen to in this clip, it goes back to what I was talking about earlier about how fully she throws herself into these characterizations and really tries to bring music that is often derided as not being serious to life. These kind, the way that she imbues these interjections with like such pathos. Um, makes them work in a way that they don't work when you're just singing the notes. And mm-hmm. yet, like, kind of in a kind of contradictory way, like, it is all there. It's all on the page waiting for, like, Enedita to bring it to life. So this is uh, from the finale of Roberto Devra in Munich uh, in 2005 with her husband, Friedrich Heider, conducting. <laughs> So that is the almost conclusion of Roberto Devereaux, an opera by Donizetti, in which Edita Kubarova sings the role of Queen Elizabeth. And that one, as Matt says, also has a video attached to it. And it's an amazing production where she does this weird thing where she pulls off her wig and it's pretty gross. <laughs> but she's really, she's really deep into it. And that performance comes, what, almost 20 years after she made that... Serbinetta recording we just listened to. So, um, you know, the voice is getting darker and, uh, but still, I mean, she's, she's doing such beautiful, she, it, expressive she stuff with it. You know? never lost her voice, e- even though like yeah. you can hear the age at the end, yeah. the high, like the notes are all still there. And yeah. sometimes, and many times the phrasing is just as sensitive as it would have been when she was younger. If Yeah. Um, and speaking of that sensitivity and phrasing, there is, I think, a tendency when you're thinking of singers like Gruberova, who can be so dazzling, to think that they, all, like, all they have is tricks. And they can't do simple, and they can't do beautiful. And I'm here to tell you that that's not true. Because <laughs> uh, my favorite bel canto role of Gruberova, I think, actually, is... Elvira in Puritani, just because she's able to do those kinds of flights of fancy and give shape to a role that um, is not particularly shaped from from the score, (laughs) from the libretto itself. Uh, And she just makes so much sense out of the score and brings so much pathos to it. Uh, And I think that that really comes through in the act one finale, which is Vieni al Tempio, where she is going to go to the church. She's going to get married and someone tells her that her fiance has disappeared. He's absconded with another woman who uh, turns out to be the deposed queen. And he has to help her because she's a royalist uh, in very bel canto fashion. But the arch of this phrase and the way that her voice soars like over the combined forces of all of the other secondary characters of the chorus of the orchestra uh, and just like the gleam in her tone all the way at the top. I, I can't think of a better clip to take us home. And so let's enjoy Edita in Ipuritani. <laughs> Thank you. 
This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opperland this week. The Royal Opera House has announced that it will review its repertoire to take account of cultural sensitivities. The Ballet and Opera Company said, To ensure we present these stories in a way that is suitable and enjoyable for modern audiences, both our artistic companies consult widely to ensure that the Royal Opera House takes account of all cultural sensitivities in its staging, casting, and presentation of much-loved historic works. Atlanta Opera is seeking BIPOC composers and librettists for a 96-hour opera writing project. Participants would be asked to complete a 10-minute opera drawn from the state of Georgia's past and present for the chance at a $10,000 prize and a commission for the company. The contest is, quote, designed for specifically composers and librettists from historically underrepresented communities, with with performances presented on Juneteenth in 2022. The big winner for the 2021 Operalia competition is Peruvian tenor Ivan Ion Rivas, who comes away with the first prize opera, Male, the Zarzuela Prize, and the Audience Award, Male. Another big winner is Russian mezzo-soprano Victoria Karkacheva, who wins first prize opera, Female, and the Birgit Nielsen Prize. Congratulations also to Mané Galoyan, who wins the Sarsuela Prize Female and the Audience Award Female. And congratulations to finalists, friends of the show, Kiman Mara, countertenor, and soprano Emily Pogorelts. Meanwhile, the Dallas Opera announced the winners of the 31st Dallas Opera National Vocal Competition. Congratulations to baritone Blake Denson, who won first place and the Audience Choice Award. And to future friend of the show, soprano Catherine Henry, who I saw in Lord of Cries at Santa Fe Opera. In trade newsapalooza, Frankfurt Opera has named Thomas Gugais to succeed Sebastian Weigel as general music director in 2023. Gugais previously served as the assistant to Daniel Berenboim in Berlin and was the Kapellmeister at Stuttgart Staatsoper. Well done, pronunciation, Weston. <laughs> Louis Langlais has been named the new director of Paris's Opry Comique thanks to French President Emmanuel Macron. The president was reported to be greatly interested in the conductor's American work for the Cincinnati Orchestra. The Royal Swedish Opera has announced the appointment of Fredrik Lindgren as its new CEO. Lindgren will, will replace Brigitte Svenden, who was retiring after 12 years tenure. Minnesota Opera has announced that Joseph Lee will take on the role of vice president responsible for the vocal and instrumental divisions of the company. Lee has been an active vocal coach for the companies of Houston Grand Opera, Wolf Trap Opera, Ottawa, Arizona, Birmingham, and the Aspen Opera Theatre. Gregory Batslier has been named the London Handel Festival's new director, succeeding Samir Savant. Batslier is also the co-founder and artistic director of Festival Voices and served as artistic director of the National Portrait Gallery's Choir in Residence program. They have a choir in residence? Oh. It's one of the, the nas- only like companies like that in the world. A museum with a choir. You just gotta yep. have, you never know when you might need one, you know? <laughs> exactly. I mean, I wish I had a choir at my disposal. On the disabled list, Royal Opera House Covent Garden has announced that Lizette Oropesa will not be appearing in the role of Violetta in Verdi's Traviata for the performance on November 15th. As a result, here we go, Anoush Hoyvanesen will take over the role. Nice. Music director of Opera Liège, Speranza Scapucci, has withdrawn from the company's production of Lucia de Lammermoor due to knee surgery. Renato Balsaronna will take over in the pit. Exit stage right. Dutch conductor Bernard Heitink has died at the age of 92. In addition to a long legacy of conducting and musical directorship of such institutions as Glyndebourne, the Concertgebouw Amsterdam, Covent Garden, and Chicago Symphony Orchestra, Heitink was known for eschewing offstage drama and showboating, even calling the opera star system a, quote, sickness of our age. Ukrainian soprano Bela Andreevna Rudenko has died at the age of 88. The coloratura became a soloist at Kiev Opera in 1956 before going on to an extensive international career, earning the title of People's Artist in the Ukraine. Rudenko taught at the Tchaikovsky Conservatoire from 1977 to 2017 and also served as the artistic director of the Bolshoi during the 90s. 
Puerto Rican soprano Jolly Marie Williams has died at 45. Williams won the Operalia competition in 1999 and went on to be recognized for her interpretations of such roles as Madame Butterfly, Tosca, La Traviata, Girondo, and Lucia de Lamamore. New Zealand baritone Barry Mora has died at 81. A member of Opa Frankfurt for most of the 1980s, Mora went on to perform at such companies as the Edinburgh Festival, Théâtre La Monnaie, Royal Opera, Scottish Opera, and the Welsh National Opera. Mezzo-soprano Emma Carr, or maybe Kerr, has died at the age of 34. Carr, who was named a Scottish opera emerging artist, was a chorus member and soloist with Glyndebourne. Said Glyndebourne's artistic director Stephen Langridge, quote, The loss of Emma has been deeply felt across the whole company. Many of us have beautiful memories of this outstanding young artist on and off the stage. And on this day, November 1st, in 1768, Johann Adolfa Haas's Piramo e Tisbe premiered in Vienna. In 1877, it was the birth of English composer, so sweet, Roger Quilter. In 1913, Ruggiero Leoncavallo's English language operetta, Are You There?, premiered in London. In 1923, Victoria de los Angeles was born in Barcelona. In 1923 also was the birth of French bass baritone Ernst Blanc. In 1954, Maria Callas made her American, American debut in <laughs> Norma, right here in the Windy City. Happy birthday to countertenor and friend of Oliver, Drew Minter, born this day in 19... <laughs> And in 1975, it was the first performance of Conrad Sousa's Block River at the Minnesota Opera. And that's your two-hour drill. just heard uh, Birthday Day Victoria de Los Angeles and possibly a little bit of Boris Christoph at the end there in Faust singing the church scene uh, and that's from their classic recording with André Cuitin conducting uh, which uh, I put in there so I could say Cuitin <laughs> you're just showing up I feel like we all kind of nailed the pronunciations today I don't know what was going on we're firing on all cylinders because uh, George is not podcast. here to, to jinx yeah, exactly. us so. <laughs> he's having surgery wah wah <laughs> <laughs> if you want to hear more of our impeccable pronunciation, you can always uh, subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher or just favorite our show on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. All right. In terms of stories, uh, obviously, the big thing happening is trade news of Palooza, which I have to thank Ashley for writing that down. Uh, but Copyright everyone was just swapping. Everyone just swapping around. You know, it's just a, an absolute... <laughs> disaster i mean it, i feel like uh, this happens things... every once in a while they're just like well time to shuffle the bases <laughs> like, and it okay. happened and it happened all this week apparently everyone was like i'm i need to make sure this is done by halloween and uh we're good to go uh i wanted to talk a little bit about the uh 96 hour opera festival it sounds pretty great um uh, it, uh if anyone wants to jump in on this you can but like i think this is just such a great idea because you see like We've obviously since, you know, over the past, you know, year and a half or so, uh, there have been so many conversations and we've started to see some things changing in, in terms of like representation on stage, off stage. But actually Atlanta Opera, you know, kind of putting their money where their mouth is a little bit, um, doing a what sounds like a pretty cool little uh, 96 hour festival challenge um, and adding to that not just the money but the opportunity to have a commission by a fairly large regional company, I think is kind of amazing. And and on top of that, the fact that what they want the operas to be about is moments from Atlanta's history. And there are so many 
national moments of important not atlanta's history georgia's history i mean also atlanta uh but there are so many moments of national like touchstone moments of history that happened in georgia and specifically that featured bipoc people the with all the civil rights leaders and matt i give you permission to say bipoc bipoc i never (laughs) well that just sounds like i know you i I can say it because i'm a person of color you have to say bipoc but right now you get i'm giving you you license we've got i mean we got to come in under time or else we'll (laughs) never get through the rest of the trade news of palooza no but just So much of an important part of it is like whose story gets told and right. and how, what kind of people are up on stage doing the telling. Uh, and that is just vi- – it will continue to be an important part as we reexamine American history and put those flaws and those, he- and those heroes who have been undersung up on, on stage as a part of our story. Yeah, and to sort of dovetail onto that, just because I, you know, I believe in speaking hope into the universe and then having it magically get heard by some of the right folks. You know, when we think about the history of Georgia, unfortunately, my brain goes to a lot of things that are a little shameful as opposed Mm -hmm. to things that need to be celebrated. But one thing that I really hope someone can really take the ball and run with it on, uh, see, worked in a sports reference there, uh, is, you know, the... (laughs) The people of Georgia, Florida, the Carolinas, uh, there's this really beautiful Gullah Geechee tradition Mm. uh, that has beautiful music and a beautiful language. And there's this, I see this as a real opportunity to put together a piece of music that can truly celebrate the Gullah Geechee uh, culture and tradition. And so I am, I'm speaking it hopefully into the universe that someone will take this and run with it. Well, we have to wrap up this show because we're getting to the hour mark here with all of the clips from Hedita Gubrova, which I'm so happy that we're included. Worth it. Um, but I want to say that I watched, uh, oh, oh, actually, I watched the entire Operalia finals round, and they get one aria each, and those competing in the Zarzuela competition get an additional aria. So I didn't see the previous rounds, like the semifinals or whatever. So um, I was really biased uh, against their ultimate decision to who to award first prize male, first prize, that's blah, blah, blah. Um, I thought Kiman Mara, I mean, really impartially, was the most exciting singer. And you heard the audience just be like, what was that? They were just, their minds were blown. But somehow yeah. that wasn't enough for the the adjudicators. And I think Anthony Roth Costanzo has, did win Operalia his season. So it's not like they haven't given it to a countertenor before, but... I mean, people who are not on the Kiman Mara train, you are going to be left behind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you got to get but, there, honey. But I have to say, though, that this competition, you could take Domingo's name out of the competition, but he is still a very, very big part of the competition. They're all talking about him, shaking his hand. He's giving out awards. He's naming the awards after his parents. There's a little montage of him and what he does. And Joyce DiDonato is talking nice about him like they're just so much lip service to domingo so i don't know how i feel about it i mean i of course i want my colleagues and my peers to like win all the money and like get all the publicity you can but it's a little bit still it's tainted you know tainted competition <laughs> tainted competition i just felt like there was too much dead air i needed to do no something. but that's where we could have closed with the uh sickness of our age line from bernard Heitink. <laughs> <laughs> what a great line yeah i i know we don't have a ton of time to talk about Heitink, but man what a what a wonderful figure in in the world of classical music and specifically in the world of chicago's classical music and we're not too far enough removed from his era at the symphony that if you've been around the opera and the orchestral world for the last i don't know 15 20 years there there's a there are personal anecdotes and stories of his legacy so uh he he will be missed let's wrap it up good call bad call on opera box score all right good call bad call it's time to wrap this show up uh let's start with oliver it's so great to hear that michael tilson thomas has recovered from his brain surgery to remove Mm. a tumor and he in fact is already getting back on the podium later on this month with the san francisco symphony and Matt Cummings. An almost as auspicious return is the return of Phantom of the Opera to the Broadway stage, uh, which was shepherded back alive by none other than Andrew Lloyd Webber himself. Uh, and the New York Times did like 
a really fun interview feature with him. I am obviously biased as someone who thinks that that show has like cycled around so much about being overrated that it's now kind of underrated. But we'll save that for another Hall of Fame. And uh, I, I, be- I believe I did see also a TikTok of Andrew Lloyd Webber at the Phantom opening party, just like absolutely raving at the DJ stand, which I did enjoy very much. Move over, Skrillex. New York's hottest <laughs> club is Phantom. It has everything. <laughs> Ashley Hardgrave. I have both a good and a bad call. We're going to start with the bad call, and that bad call is Norm Lebrecht. What I can say in two words, sir, is get bent. A few more, you only wish you had half the appeal of Yu Jia Wong. Period. End of sentence. And my good call is to our dear friend Weston Williams, who got engaged this weekend. Oh, yeah. I did. Yeah. Uh, to a woman. Though- <laughs> yes, it's true. Not, not to me. Not, not to not to you. I <laughs> not did for that, lack of that, trying. My bad call is that when I did post the engagement post, not a joke, I did accidentally tag Oliver Camacho in the photo with me, which was unfortunate. Luckily, the engagement is still on despite I that. I think so. so. We, now, we now both work at WFMT, so our sort of mutual colleagues are like, oh, is that why Oliver wanted Weston to come on board? You know? <laughs> That is interesting. For, interesting choice, Oliver. But sure, I, I can see it. You know, <laughs> that's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell, who can be found at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. Help us deepen our bench of listeners by liking and sharing our social media posts. Email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. Drop us a line and get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS label pin just for sharing your own hot take. That's a great deal. Subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher or just favorite our show on Apple Podcasts. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is me. For your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm Weston Williams asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you learn all the extra notes of the 1912 version of Ariadne of Naxos. We're back with an all-new show next week where you'll get more opera headlines, more hot takes, more Donut Study Queens. Join us.